Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Yes, good afternoon and welcome to Uprise Radio, a new fortnightly podcast and radio half hour focusing a radical lens on the current affairs of the day. That song there was Jimmy Cliff with Save Our Planet Earth and today we're talking about Extinction Rebellion, a globally operational mass political movement calling for civil disobedience and direct action to challenge the ruling powers to step up and do something about the impending climate catastrophe. My name's Jackson. And in the studio with me is James. Good afternoon, James. Good afternoon, Jackson. And thanks to all the listeners tuning in. It's great to be back on 3CR. And uh, uh, it's a very important uh, topic, obviously, talking about climate change itself. But I think uh, the Extinction Rebellion has really gathered the attention of many across the world after the success in the UK. And I'm excited to bring together a number of voices we've got from that movement yeah, and we're going to be talking about nonviolent direct action more broadly, which is a really key tenet of the way Extinction Rebellion are operating and mobilizing people. We'll look at a bit at the history and background of the XR founders, and we're going to be joined on the phone as well by Christine Canty, who's a Melbourne-based doctor and activist with Extinction Rebellion families. But first up, just to give us a bit of context, I want to play a little clip of uh, Greta Thunberg, who I'm sure everyone's heard of, uh, her school strikes for climate have paralleled nicely alongside XR's actions in recent months. And this recording, it's actually from a video that a Melbourne videographer, Kate Flo Murphy, her name is, put together, um, featuring images of last month's riding and dying on Sydney Road and out the front of Brunswick Town Hall. It was organised by XR Moreland. And Greta's words here just provide a good, quick background as to why this activism is becoming ever more essential. We are right now in the beginning of a climate and ecological crisis. And we need to call it what it is. An emergency. Unless we recognize the overall failures of our current systems, we most probably don't stand a chance. The main solution, however, is so simple that even a small child can understand it. We have to stop our emissions of greenhouse gases. And either we do that or we don't. Now we all have a choice. We can create transformational action that will safeguard the living conditions for future generations. Or we can continue with our business as usual and fail. That is up to you and me. If you look through history, all the big changes in society have been started by people at the grassroots level. People like you and me. So we can no longer save the world by playing by the rules. Because the rules have to be changed. 
everything needs to change. And it has to start today. So everyone out there, it is now time for civil disobedience. It is time to rebel. Greta Thunberg actually joined the founders of Extinction Rebellion, Gail Bradbrook and Roger Hallam, in London, October 2018. They occupied Parliament Square and made a declaration of rebellion against the UK government's inaction on the climate emergency. James, can you tell me a little bit more about the history of Extinction Rebellion? Well, just to touch on Greta first, I think that, you know, it can't be overstated, I think, how inspiring I think her actions are when you know, to take herself out of school, to spend even a day just by yourself sitting and thinking and protesting um, against climate change is a lot more than a lot of people have done already. And I think that it's, uh, you know, it's a pretty it's a pretty special thing. And I think from the school uh, climate strikes we've seen as well, one of the most striking things for me has been young people, not at the actions, but on the microphone. And that's an inspiration to all young people to get involved when they see someone that is more like them. So I'm just going to start quickly with a quote from the Extinction Rebellion Handbook, um, which is available from bookshops. The signs are loud and clear from the earth, from science, from women, from children, from indigenous communities, from our daily lives. The life on this planet and our own future is under severe threat. That's from Vandana Shiva, who's an academic, uh, as part of the foreword for the book. Now, I say out of the rubble of the Occupy movement, which we spoke about earlier, which I guess rebelled against the economic fallout of the global financial crisis, has come this new movement for the climate. Extinction Rebellion came from the UK, and I'd say that the political vacuum that exists in the UK through Brexit, plus the leadership of left-wing our leader in Jeremy Corbyn and Labour Party has really created that space for the Extinction Rebellion to be able to thrive and is opened has now spread to other countries including Australia. I think it's going to be really interesting to see how it works in Australia with a conservative government that we have with no real regard for climate action, mm-hmm. no left leadership. You know, is the public ready for that kind of part of consistent movement to force change? And I think one of the things that, you know, has been through a lot of the um you know, work on Extinction Rebellion is that you need a small group of people that are able to, um, you know, have consistent political action. And I think one of the, you know, the failed attempts of the anti-war movement around the Iraq and Afghanistan wars was the fact we had mass protests. Mm -hmm. 100,000 people, huge protests. But we weren't able to consolidate that into those people, even a percentage of those people that was big enough to have consistent action that would mean... You know, you can, whether it's direct action, you know, I, I know Extinction Rebellion say they're not interested in writing letters and things like that, but a broad campaign that is doing all of those things, including the kind of direct action, is the kind of action that's needed to form a movement that's successful. Mm. And I think there are still a lot of scars in Australia about the anti-war movement's lack of success in that time. And I'd say, you know, I think that there's still a lot of um, toxicity around campaigns that kind of you know, toxic environment that people get involved in where they don't necessarily feel welcomed, that, you know, they're expected to know things that they don't already know. And I think that it's really important that this movement can be something that is open and welcoming Mm. to people. I think that seems to be one of their basic strengths is that uh, my understanding is the idea is that if if you agree with the three operating principles or the three 
demands, XR call them, or Extinction Rebellion call them. If you agree with those demands, then you're welcome to form a group to use their branding, to, to use the, the colors and symbols that they use, and call yourself Extinction Rebellion and get out there and do an action that suits you. You know, I don't think they are limited. I mean, one of the key uh, underpinning theorists uh, of Extinction Rebellion is Gene Sharp, who wrote a book about nonviolent direct action, which had 198 different ways to engage in that, you know, from and letter writing is included in that. So I don't think anyone is precluding those type of actions. But I think it's also a key difference. I think one regular critique of Occupy, which I think suffered from a similar fate as the one you're describing of the anti-war movement here in Australia at the turn of this century, in that you know they managed to mobilise masses of people around a really val- valid cause, but then in the aftermath, where what political action that cause was directed towards, all those people directed towards, wasn't quite clear. But I think it is something that Extinction Rebellion have been more clear on. I thought it'd be worth playing uh, just a short clip from Extinction Rebellion that uh, gives their three demands. Coral reefs are a very warm day. Severe. We did ask the government wave this year. The warmest yes. day ever. 12 degrees increasing in The breakdown of our climate has begun. The ecological crisis can no longer be ignored. This government has a fine record on climate change. We are in open rebellion against our government and we call upon every principled and peaceful citizen to rise with us. We have three demands. The government must tell the truth by declaring a climate and ecological emergency. The government must act now to halt biodiversity loss and reduce greenhouse gas emissions to net zero by 2025. The government must commission a National Citizens' Assembly, a group of citizens chosen by lot and reflective of the demographics of the UK, together with experts and stakeholders, to vote on recommendations on the climate and ecological emergency. We refuse to leave a dying planet to future generations by failing to act now. So one feature of Extinction Rebellion's communications is that they do paint you know, while it may be accurate, it's an extremely dire picture of the the situation the world is in right now. You know, imminent starvation in certain countries, social collapse, economic collapse, really right around the corner. And something that's been interesting as an observer, uh, myself as an observer, but I think it's really baffled some of the mainstream commentators trying to understand how thousands are turning out willing to get arrested um, you know, despite this kind of catastrophic doom and gloom description as the motivator, uh, it's been very successful in drawing people into the movement. And one thing that I think is quite interesting is they open a lot of their talks online and a lot of videos that they post, focusing on an understanding, both understanding and accommodating the grief that accompanies a growing understanding of just how close we are to environmental and social collapse. And they start with that kind of, you know, psychological um, support uh, to enable you to then jump into action. But it's been interesting uh, looking at some of the um, mainstream responses uh, to the many people getting involved with Extinction Rebellion, first in England and, and now here in Australia as well. I mean, you know, thousands turned out in November 2018 and they blockaded five bridges in central London and then numbers swelled over the next months and it kind of culminated in over a thousand arrests and tens of thousands of people in the streets of London in April this year across various London landmarks, you know, doing all different types of actions, you know, dramatic presentations, uh, locking themselves on to objects in the street, blocking traffic. And they drew a really broad range of support, you know, from people, obvious people like Naomi Wolf and uh, George Monbiot to like uh, 
you know, UK Labor MP, Stella Creasy, Jeremy Clarkson, you know, really odd people coming out in support of uh, Extinction Rebellion's cause. But I thought it'd be interesting to hear a little bit from uh, one of the co-founders of Extinction Rebellion, Roger Hallam. Uh, this is him being interviewed by the BBC's Stephen Sacker uh, on Hard Talk. Uh, and Stephen's just trying to uh, get a handle on the movement's popularity, I think. Do you acknowledge that the message you are peddling, and it is full of past failure, deep negativity, the most urgent of alarms and emergencies for right now, do you accept that it can't be successful as a sort of movement without taking the public with you? The, the public is starting to get round to the idea that we're facing social collapse. Like before April, before there were 1,200 arrests in the streets of London, in the biggest civil disobedience protest in British history, the British public didn't have any opinion on the climate emergency. Afterwards, 67% of the British public agree there is one. Do you want to bring down the, the capitalist system as we know it? Is, is that the, the capitalist system is going to be brought down by itself. The capitalist system is eating itself. Well, no, itself. but the point about your no, no, movement let, is that... No, let's just let me make this point and clear, right? The capitalist system, the global system that we're in, is in the process of destroying itself, and it will destroy itself in the next 10 years. Yeah. The reason for that is because it's destroying the climate. The climate is what's necessary to grow food. If you can't grow food, there'll be starvation and social collapse. Now, the problem is, is people in the elites and people in the BBC and people in the governmental sector cannot get their heads around what's actually happening. The fact of the matter is, if you go out and talk to ordinary people in the street, they're aware of this. And that's why hundreds of thousands of people around the world are starting to take action. And that's what we've seen here in Australia as well with events held by Extinction Rebellion, drawing large crowds. I was at an event in Moreland a few weeks ago and there were, you know, maybe just under a thousand people involved. And, you know, this is early days of the movement just here. You know, one key aspect is this idea of non-violent direct action, you know, which is a set of tools aimed at disrupting society to force uh, conversation and change. And nonviolent action has been used all over the world in a variety of circumstances, you know, from the independent struggle in India to the Arab Spring uprisings, so-called colour revolutions in former Soviet bloc Eastern Europe, forest blockades in Tasmania, and the current democracy uprisings in Hong Kong. So Gene Sharp, who I mentioned before, is kind of a, he's an American political scientist, and this is what he sees as nonviolent direct action. It means a lot of different things to different people, and that's one reason I try not to use the term nonviolence, which is so commonly used, because it may mean to somebody passivity and submission. It may mean religious or ethical pacifism to someone else. It may mean militant struggle to somebody else. So I usually talk about nonviolent action or nonviolent struggle, and particularly nonviolent struggle, to indicate that this is a way of conducting conflicts, acute conflicts, yeah, precisely those where people might otherwise use violence. So it's not like negotiations or conciliation at all. It's another way of fighting. 
So Gene Sharp, he literally wrote the book on nonviolent direct action <clears throat> with a second volume of his Politics of Nonviolent Action detailing 198 methods of civil disobedience and their uses, which included personal, political and economic methods of rebellion. Yeah, I think it is interesting. I just wanted to pick up on a couple of points. And I think one is around, I guess, that kind of alarmist, you know, um, should we just be, are we concerning the public too much if we're talking mm. about these, you know, is, issues being catastrophic, extinction, you know, all these kind of words. And I guess to me, you know, it it is a new kind of paradigm in some ways for the environmental movement. But it's a paradigm that a lot of other movements have sat in for quite a while, I think. You know, if you think about, you know, any kind of anti-war kind of activism, it, it is talking about an imminent threat. You know, it's there could be thousands of people die because of of a war. You know, we saw hundreds of thousands of people die in Iraq. And or, you know, the threat of nuclear war, which is, you know, a constant now throughout, you know, power uh, challenges and, and, you know, power sort of shifts between uh, either major or, or, you know, even middle powers um, throughout the world and all throughout the Cold War. You know, children, we talk, people talk about climate now and, and terrifying children. Our children were trained to hide under their desks to hide from nuclear bombs during the Cold War era. So, yes, I think that it is a it is a crisis but we've had crises before and you know i think it's gives me a bit of a chuckle i guess to hear that capitalism is coming down and it obviously it just makes you think of marx who you know foretold that capitalism will come you know is nearing its end as you know marx said that capitalism digs is digs its own grave diggers by the nature of the oppression it puts people through that it's also the oppression as the means of what is oppressing us is also the thing that can be the means of people's breaking of the shackles of those that oppression as well. Mm. You're listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned to hear the rest of your 3CR podcast. I mean, scientists have been predicting this environmental collapse since the 1960s. You know, the UN has been, you know, convening committees to discuss responses. I think Greta Thunberg, at the very start of our program today, put it very simply that there is a response that that may work to avoid this catastrophe, and it's about giving up on fossil fuels, stop bringing them out of the ground, stop putting them into the atmosphere as carbon dioxide. But capitalism, in the main, is the huge stumbling block to stop that happening. You know, this the idea of leaving such profitable materials in the ground, even though it's going to mean mm. terrible change. And, you know, I think, you know, it's, it's interesting here in Australia where if you live in, you know, central Australia, you know, the impacts might not be as desperate as if you live on a, a low-lying island in the Pacific. And we saw the way the Australian government, you know, feels about the really imminent threat that those nations are under uh, both last time we had a Pacific Island Forum and just more recently with, um, you know, politicians, very high-level politicians being caught laughing on tape about this or, or, or saying that they'll be fine because they can come here and pick our fruit, you know. From I think it's it's also difficult to imagine these same people who are responsible for the death and destruction, you know, through military and other kind of conflicts and these same companies that have knowingly, you know, ripped up the earth or, you know, sent poisonous gas or, you know, bombs or all kinds of things who are involved in this killing machines mm. are suddenly going to turn around and be concerned about the people on the planet. They, they've spent their lives destroying it, and it's difficult to imagine those same people wanting to do something positive. 
Well, I think it's worth talking. We've talked a little bit about the history of Extinction Rebellion, but I think it's worth talking about what's happening here in Australia. And I think the real success that Helen was talking about uh, just before um, in April uh, this year, uh, April 2019 in London, kind of uh, catapulted Extinction Rebellion onto the global stage. And already, uh, particularly in Queensland, we saw quite uh, growing protests through June, July and into August of this year. Uh, you know, Queensland's obviously a hot point for environmental activism in Australia for obvious reasons. Uh, and by August, you know, so June and July saw XR activists blockade traffic, glue themselves to the road, you know, uh, maybe about 100 people involved, but by August 6th, last month, hundreds of activists shut down Brisbane CBD for nearly a full day. Now, it's really difficult to judge the participation rates because, you know, doing some research without being there, if you're there, you can know how many people are involved, but it's very interesting. The mainstream media seem completely uh, disinterested in trying to even guess or estimate the numbers of people attending these uh, civic disobedience rallies. Instead, they focus on the amount of arrests, and you kind of need to infer how many people were there based on the arrests. But on August 6th, uh, you know, there were 70 people arrested and scores of charges laid uh, on those 70 people. And I suppose you can also look to the reactions from legislators to this growing trend of putting your body on the line uh, and disrupting society to you know because it is an emergency because other options are no longer working. In Queensland, Anastasia Palisade rushed through uh, draconian new anti-protest laws aimed at charging people carrying any device which could be used to lock on and avoid uh, being moved. And Palisade is likening these devices to weapons and booby traps without a lot of evidence that they are. Um, and this has drawn the ire of the Greens up there and also some of her Labor colleagues at the Queensland State Conference uh, in late August. And we also saw similar reactions uh, in April here in Australia when animal rights activists um, uh, had a, a day um, in early April of nonviolent interventions uh, in farms and cafes serving meat products. Uh, they shut down parts of Flinders Street uh, for some time, you know, using lock-on techniques. And this prompted Attorney General Christian Porter to announce uh, new laws that he said uh, re-elected, which unfortunately we have a re-elected Morrison government, uh, would enact promising jail time not for people who trespass, for people who discuss trespassing online. You know, if you uh, write to a friend online and say, I think we should go to this abattoir, I think we should go to this killing space and expose it, film it, enter the premises, you know, use some direct action, you can go to jail for a year under under these new laws. That's the proposal. And you know that, you know, this is not going to be limited to trespass under the um, umbrella of, of animal activism. This will quickly be extended to all different types of, of activism, all types of different types of political expression. Even here in Victoria, you know, with our so-called, you know, um, uh, progressive um, doyen in uh, the Andrews government, under the cover of the racist dog whistling surrounding gang violence, you know, they have armed the police here in Victoria with truly frightening crowd dispersal weaponry. Uh, it looks straight out of Starship Troopers. They are in, you know, really bulky, heavy armor. They carry uh, crowd dispersal grenades, least lethal ammunition. Uh, these elite response units are, you know, trained to be deployed to disperse crowds. And you just know that with all that money spent on equipment and training, they will be used at the first opportunity, such as a massive and disruptive rally, which, you know, Extinction Rebellion are openly calling for people to be involved in. We've got the Spring Rebellions coming up. We've got the blockade of IMARC, the International Minerals and Resources Council, coming up at the end of October. And you do just wonder what kind of response there's going to be from the state uh, as people use these techniques more and more. Yeah, and I think that if you look at what has happened in Hong Kong, and I think, um, you know, the situation there is, is changing all the time. And you can see the kind of way that those type of non-lethal 
uh, weapons can be used and the kind of tactics that will, will be used there. You can imagine if some, you know, type of action were anywhere similar or on the, any, any type of similar scale to what's been happening in Hong Kong was to happen, for instance, through Melbourne or Sydney or, or anywhere that um, the kind of response that we would get. And I think it, that non-lethals, I was seeing that on the um, weapons that the um, Hong Kong police are using, it just looks so strange. And um, it was one of the few words in English, you know, watching sort of footage of the protests and it just very striking. I think, you know, we've already seen, uh, yes, you know, we know about a lot of the the new weaponry that the Andrews government has put in. But also, you know, we've seen the way that the Victorian police have operated at the Occupy protests. Um, we, we saw in the past how they um, have how, how they behaved at things like um, the S11 protests. Anti-fascist protests have been... Yeah, so we know, we know what um, the history of, of how they will behave. And we, we saw um, during the APEC conference in Sydney... Um, you know, we had huge water tankers just doing laps and pretending to aim at um, protesters. All the city was cordoned off. We had um, people um, with sniper rifles all across the buildings. It, it was terrifying. And it gave you a, a reminder to how people in other places like Palestine are forced to live all the time mm. as well. Yeah, and you wonder where that line is. Like we, we are lucky in Australia that we, you know, we have more of a right than Palestinians or Hong Kong. You know, for for public assembly, uh, people in Hong Kong to public assembly and and action. Uh, I think it's worth um, playing a few clips from a rally that was just on last month. Um, uh, when we come back, we're going to uh, be joined by a guest, Dr. Christine Canty, to talk about her involvement in Extinction Rebellion. Uh, but this is from the uh, ride-in and dying at Sydney Road. This is a little bit of music that spontaneously erupted on the street from our Elf Transporter, who's a regular at these type of events, and uh, Zane Elkhorn on the beatbox. And then a few thoughts from Zane about uh, the organisation of XR. Wood stolen, wood stolen, on the land stolen, never seen in sovereignty property, many living in poverty, but still we can rise when we get together, we stronger when we there in the group, the unit, every time we do this it's unique, I speak to my breeder freaks and need the peace, we cannot wait, so that's how we be doing it right now on the plate, the platter getting fatter, but still improvising, while tides keep on rising. And it's not surprising The people ready to take action Don't shun the act I'm taking the power back In general, it's radical action It's talking about uh, rapidly decarbonising the world economy it's, it's about using people power to force political action So it's not about lobbying or whatever um, or writing letters or petitions or whatever. It's about people power out in the streets being disruptive on an ongoing, regular basis. And I think that's that's how it's got to happen. And that was Zane Elkhorn, and it was at the ride-in that happened uh, a few weeks ago. And he was um, he's a regular on 3CR, so I'm sure you probably recognise his voice. And it was great to hear from him as well as Elf Transporter. Now, on the line, we've got Dr. Christine Canty, who's going to, who's an um, Extinction Rebellion activist, and we're going to be chatting about some of the upcoming events, and just, I guess, to get a bit more of an idea about Extinction Rebellion's, um, you know, role in Australia. So thanks a lot for joining us, Christine. Thanks, nice to be here. 
I guess to start with, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about what your role is within Extinction Rebellion and just how you became involved. Sure. So I first became in, involved in Extinction Rebellion in the SNAP rally that they put on just after the election. I saw the rally and felt that I needed to do something more than, than what I was currently doing. And I went along and, and heard about the, the ideas behind Extinction Rebellion in terms of the non-violent civil disobedience. And I thought, this is something that I need to be involved in because we're going to need to take this up a notch. This is this is something that is going to require more than, than what has been happening. So I joined up and became involved and... There's been sort of two main ways that I've been uh, helping out with XR and one is that I've been involved in the, the media and messaging group. I work as a, a neuropsychologist and so I've been trying to sort of bring my understanding of psychology more broadly but also neuropsychology in terms of how we process information. So I've been working with that group and I've also been coordinating the Extinction Rebellion families um, so trying to make sure that our activities are and actions are family-friendly and organising some of those family-friendly activities for the Spring Rebellion coming up from October 7th. And I guess with that, um, you know, the involvement of families, could you tell us, I guess, a little bit about why that's important and what kind of family-friendly events could be at some of the upcoming actions? Sure. I think, well, it's important because at this point we need everybody and we need a way to be able to discuss this with our kids because it's their future that we're talking about. So I think it's really important to involve children in this conversation, obviously at a, a level that's, that's age-appropriate for them. But there's a, a whole lot of research about getting involved in activism and how that's very beneficial in terms of, of the psychology of this because initially it seems like a pretty big and scary thing to talk about the climate crisis, and, and it, it certainly is. But we also know that getting involved in um, in actions is is something that can help to balance that out, the sense of community that comes from that. And just the, the feeling of being active and working towards a goal is really important. So when we have these conversations with children, it's important to make sure that we, one, tell the truth, in you know, which is Extinction Rebellion's first demand, in a way that's appropriate to children, but also give them something that they can, can do. And so one of those things that we're trying to do is to have lots of family-friendly activities. Um, we've been so far working on, um, we've had some arts and crafts kind of workshops and just getting families together and talking about what XR is about and doing some, some fun kind of art stuff, getting some badges and flags and things like that ready. During the rebellion, our plan is to hold some family-friendly activities at Carlton Gardens. And they'll be things like... Um, some story time, some, um, again, lots of arts and crafts activities. Uh, we'll be running some philosophy workshops. We'll have some performances. And essentially, they are ways to, one, bring people together to, again, get that sense of community and allow people to, to experience the feeling of actively working mm -hmm. to address this issue. Um, and two, just being able to sort of provide some, some fun fun activities and and fun, safe, family-friendly activities so that we can have everybody involved. 
Well, yeah, I think it sounds like a really important space to have within the movement. I just wanted to shift now, I guess, to something a little bit different. And I want to talk about, I think, since the report in 2017 about 100 companies contributing to 71% of global emissions, we've seen no real change from those companies or governments, you know, really in a whole. Yet in recent times, we've seen a continued consumer or individual environmental change, such as plastic bag bans, keep cups and this kind of thing. What do you think is the balance between individual changes and corporate change? I think that's a really great great question and certainly since that Carbon Majors report came out in 2017, I've seen a lot of debate about that and I think, I think a lot of the debate around that comes from looking at it as a false dichotomy because the individual changes that we can do and the systemic changes that we can do, it's not one or the other. I think the reality is that we need to be to be looking at both. And the way that I think about this is um, we, first of all, all, all of us need to be making individual changes to, to address this. That's key. And it's going to happen at some point or another where we have to change the, certainly in Australia, the privileged lifestyles that we are leading. And whether that happens now or whether it happens because of regulation from governments or whether it happens in response to the inevitable disasters and you know effects on our um, food consumption and um, natural disasters and things like that that will happen um, is kind of up to us, but it will happen at some point. So there is certainly an argument that we need to be making those individual changes and, and you know, in terms of the, the top four things that, that, pr- that produce the most amount of carbon emissions, so things like having less children reducing our flying, reducing our use of cars and eating less meat. But just because we're doing all of those individual things doesn't mean we need to be taking the next level because the reality is that the scale of the crisis at this point is now so big and the timeframes are now so tight for us to be able to make the changes that are required that those individual changes, as much as they're important and necessary, are just not enough at this point. And I think... You know, what we need to be doing is thinking about the system that we're working in that allows those 100 companies to produce so many um, greenhouse gas emissions and looking at disrupting that system because changing it from the the individual level is going to take a very, very long time and in reality is probably impossible unless we change things at a systemic level. So if we think about changing things at a systemic level, I think we can either kind of disrupt that system from a a top-down approach or a bottom-up approach. And a top-down approach, I think, would be things like our governments legislating against those companies so that they are not able to do the amount of damage that they're doing. Mm. And also, at the same time, making sure that we provide um, you know, proper transitions for people within those industri- industries mm. to be able to still have jobs and, and be able to be supported to change. Yeah, but just... the reality is... Sorry, yeah. No, no, I'm sorry I interrupted you. Go ahead. I'll edit that That's out. That's okay. <laughs> The, the reality is, I think, that our, our governments are just not doing that. And so um, if we wait for that top-down system change, we're, we're going to be waiting too long. It needs to happen now. And so the other way that we can do this is the, the bottom-up approach, which is basically using people power for mass civil disobedience. And we know from, from history that that is effectual in, in change. And so that's kind of, that's the point that we're at now in XR is that, yes, we need to be doing those individual things, but we also need to be doing more than that. It's not enough to be recycling and composting and taking public transport. We need to be now using our, our privileged position in society to be able to disrupt 
the system that is resulting in this climate crisis. Yeah, and I think, you know, this civil disobedience, it has been proved historically to, to work, but it's also a method of, of confrontation, you know, a method of, of making, you know, in some senses making non-violent war with, with another uh, party, you know, a party that doesn't seem to want the same uh, changes or is in, unable to enact those changes, as you've said. Like, I, I, I can't see without some direct confrontation uh, an Australian government or any government deciding to leave fossil fuels in the ground and not extract them and sell them and, and pump them into the air. So I, I do wonder, you know, one of the features of civil disobedience, unfortunately, is that the state, you know, we have seen here and elsewhere that the state restaurant responds heavy-handedly uh, to these tactics as they escalate. How do you have those conversations with, with young people, you know, when you're preparing them to be involved in the Spring Rebellion or, you know, the blockade of our mark that's coming up? I mean, how do you talk to your kids about those interactions? Yeah, look, you're right. It's, it's a really difficult conversation to have and it is an important conversation to have. So within Extinction Rebellion more broadly, we do training for nonviolent civil disobedience. So it's um, a major factor, a major um, part of XR that we are nonviolent and we need to make sure that all of our people who are involved in, in these actions are clear on that and particularly clear on that despite what the response might be by the police who are there. So we need to be kind of strong in, in that. Um, and so there's this ongoing training that we have to be able to support our people to be able to do that. I think for me personally, you know, having this conversation with my kids, um, what I've been trying to do is to focus on the fact that we are in a really privileged position to be able to do this. Like there are many countries in the world where if you were to protest in this way, you would be putting yourself at a, a, a massive risk, at risk of death um, or significant harm. So we need to first of all recognise how privileged we are to be in a position to do this. And I think with that comes responsibility to, to actually step up and, and be doing this because there are many people who want to but, but actually can't. So I think having that conversation but also just being prepared to, to be safe on the day and knowing when to, to step out if you need to, um, it's, a really, it's, it's a tricky kind of thing to navigate. I think one of the things I think is interesting is, you know, we've seen other movements and protests being inspired from overseas and coming to Australia, such as S11 and Occupy. And I think some of the upcoming actions have a, you know, perhaps a little hint of, of those kind of movements as well. You know, what kind of thing do you think is different here in Australia for, you know, what's been um, XT's kind of framework in the UK and what can people expect coming to get involved in the group? So I think the thing that people can expect is um, that there will. what we are aiming for is large-scale mass civil disobedience. And I guess the first thing that I want people to know if they're thinking about coming to something like this is that there are many, many roles within that. So certainly there are many people within XR who are putting themselves on the line and willing to, to get arrested. But there are also many people who aren't in a position to be able to get arrested but who will be playing sort of support roles for those people who are going to be uh, arrested, our arrestees. But as well as that, a huge part of what we are trying to, doing, to do here is, is building the movement. And so we're looking to create a social tipping point where there are so many people within Australia who are involved in understanding this that it will be impossible for our government to, to not do something about it. So in addition to the people who are out there on the front line getting arrested, there's also the people who are supporting them, 
But then in addition to that, just the people who are there boosting numbers. And so, for example, for the, the XR Families events that we'll be doing, that's really about just getting a whole lot of people together, showing our, our solidarity and also demonstrating to, to other people that this is safe. It's fun. They, you know, we can see from, from what they did in the, the UK that there's lots of really creative and fun aspects to this, to this protest. So I guess that's kind of what we want people to, to know is that no matter where you sit on the continuum of, of where you're at in terms of wanting to get arrested or just wanting to, to support the movement, there really is a role for, for everybody in this. Well, and I think... Sorry, good. Just, in, I mean, in terms of your, your question about how, how this relates in particular to an Australian context, I guess the reality is that XR has only been around in Australia for about a year or so. So we're really quite a young movement and there's still a lot of fine-tuning that I think that we need to do in terms of our approach and making sure that it is applicable to Australia. And one of the great things about XR is that everybody is, everybody is invited. And so if there are uh, people out there who feel like that they've got something to contribute in terms of how XR operates in Australia, then I think... I would invite them to, to get involved and to, to have their say because I do think we need to think about how this is applicable to Australian to an Australian context um, and particularly to our Indigenous people and how we're making sure that all voices are heard and that we're not... I mean, we have to recognise that we are working within a system that oppresses groups of people and we need to be clear that that system that we're trying to disrupt is already oppressing those people and we need to make sure those people have a voice and that's something that we're really still trying to work on and, you know, open to, to ideas from people who want to get involved. Well, I agree. And I think that although it's the science and, you know, the fact of what's happening with the climate is certainly a very um, scary and uh, difficult thing to deal with, it's also a really exciting time to get involved, um, as you say, in a movement that, you know, is growing and it's a movement that you can or make a difference in. Um, so we've ra actually run out of time today, but we really thank you for coming on the show, Christine, and we look forward to seeing you on the streets. You're welcome. Yep, you too. Thanks very much. That was Uprise Radio on 3CR. I'm Jackson. He's James. Send you off with a song uh, from American band Big Thief. It's a song called Not. Uh, I think it's got some good environmental overtones, uh, and I hope you enjoy it. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.
catch you next time.